as you're taking your seats, you can go ahead and grab your Bibles and open them up to the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 24. Approximately eight years ago, almost to this very day, um, we launched Harvest Bible Chapel, Durham Region. And um, we've been here ever since in the same location, and today has been uh, very nostalgic for me, thinking back uh, over what God has done over these last few years. We launched the church as a part of a fellowship of churches uh, called Harvest Bible Fellowship. And uh, uh, earlier this year, as we've let you know already, our church family, but some of you who are new, it's helpful just to maybe fill you in what's been going on. Um, the fellowship of church that we were a part of, Harvest Bible Fellowship, was dissolved, and a new fellowship of churches was birthed in its place. Um, the fellowship of churches um, that we've joined to partner with is called the Great Commission Collective. And uh, I want to encourage you this this collective, this organization really picked up the pieces from the previous fellowship that we are a part of and desired to take the same mission and move it forward. I like to think of it as, as you know, it, it's, it's, it's just like us. We're the same church um, in one sense, on the same mission, nothing's changed. We're just moving forward with a new name. And I wanna encourage you this morning, my hope and my desire is to encourage you by the word of God about the importance of the name that we've chosen. You'll notice that we have launched and you're, we're, we're making you very aware of the fact that the new name of our church is Redemption Church. Um, I'm, just, I, I'm, just still, I'm, I'm kind of still overwhelmed by the stories of redemption we've heard this morning, aren't you? And I, I had this whole introduction set up to kind of explain to you kind of how this would be necessary, but then as I was sitting listening to these testimonies, every single story that we heard this morning was a story of God's powerful redemption. And it was a reminder, I sat there and I, just, I couldn't help but think that just in salvation, what God is doing is he's taking things that are broken and he is redeeming them for the glory of his name. Our God specializes in taking what is lost and empty and broken because of sin and turning it into something beautiful, into something glorious. In 1950 to 1956, C.S. Lewis began publishing the classic series that he had began to write earlier after the Second World War, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia. There's been over 100 million copies of that series sold. It's been translated into more than 47 different languages. Hundreds of millions of people have read these stories, have loved these stories. They've been turned into major motion pictures. And to many of those who have read these stories over the years, it simply is just that. It's a good story. It's an entertaining story. It's fun. It's inspiring. It's encouraging. But that is to miss the point of those stories. If you look at those stories and simply believe that it's a good story, you actually miss the obvious intentions of the author himself, C.S. Lewis. As we know as followers of Jesus Christ, C.S. Lewis wrote this series in part to convey truths of Christianity, especially the central truth of Christianity, the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the famous figure Aslan. It's a reminder, listen, that it's possible to read a story, to find it incredibly interesting, and to entirely miss the point. You might focus too much on the scenery or, or maybe the, the minor characters and the character developments. You might read little pieces of the story or skip entire sections. Maybe you kind of cherry pick from different parts and assume that you can maybe piece or loosely connect the dots in your own mind. But the reality is if you do any of these things, it's more than likely you'll misunderstand the story, both its hero and its major themes. 
You see, when it comes to the Bible, all 66 books of the Bible are telling one grand story, and if you don't pay attention, you can actually miss the entire point. You see, the Bible is ultimately telling God's grand story of redemption. In fact, there is a fascinating story in the New Testament about a couple of men who had read the Old Testament scriptures, who had been taught the Old Testament scriptures, but had entirely missed the point of the Old Testament scriptures, what they were ultimately pointing to. They missed the unfolding story of God's redemption, at least in its fullness. This morning, I want us to hone in on the story of redemption. I want us to grasp why this is so central in the Christian life, why this is so central in the church of Jesus Christ, and why we've chosen this name. And my hope and prayer is not only that you understand with clarity how big of an issue and theme this is in the word of God, but it encourages you and excites you about the direction that we're moving in as a church. So first, just make note of this. The story of redemption is first the message of the Bible. It is, in one sense, the overarching message of the scriptures. And I want to pick up and drop into this conversation in Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 13 and kind of following down to verse 27. There was a couple of men who were walking along a road to a place called Emmaus. This is following the heels of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the public crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And here they're trying to figure out what's happened and and what they've seen over the last few days. It's been three days since the crucifixion event. And in this conversation, as they walk along, it says in verse 17 that they stood still looking sad. They were confused about what they had witnessed and they had misunderstood so much. And he said to them, as, a, as by the way, Jesus has dropped into the conversation, he veils from their eyes, veils himself from their eyes. They do not, do not know it's him. And he says to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And then I want you to notice this right here. This gets to the heart of what they're trying to wrestle through. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. They were looking at Jesus, these men, and all of the faithful Israelites at the time of Jesus. They were looking at Jesus as if he was the hope of redemption, as if he was the one who has chosen the Messiah of God to redeem Israel. His death to them had meant that he could not accomplish their redemption. They had seen the public crucifixion, and somehow they believed that that disqualified him from being their redeemer. Jesus tells them that they have misunderstood, essentially, the main point of the Bible. They missed this crucial message. They missed what redemption meant, and so they missed the redeemer himself, Jesus Christ, And it's so fascinating that what Jesus does here is to take them back through the word of God, the inspired, revealed word of God. 
And when Jesus surveyed the Old Testament scriptures, what we see in verse 27 is so clear, he actually intended for his followers to understand that all of these books were written about him and about the redemption that he would provide. They all pointed to the hope of redemption, the way that God had planned it from the beginning. It's important to understand what the word redemption actually means. It's a common word in the Bible, and it actually evokes uh, images of the marketplace. You can imagine uh, somebody redeeming uh, something, purchasing something, a business transaction. To redeem at its kind of most fundamental level is simply to buy or to buy back. But biblically speaking, it carries this idea of a transaction at a cost, at a heavy cost, a steep cost. It also carries the idea of to liberate somebody or to set somebody free for a price. Theologically speaking, the the idea of redemption is loaded with strength and power. In fact, the word redemption is synonymous with the word deliverance. It has the idea of breaking bonds, of liberating the captives with a strong and mighty arm. While it paints this picture of strength on the part of the Redeemer, I want you also to notice that it paints the picture of weakness and helplessness on the part of those being redeemed. It paints the picture of neediness. If you were to survey the use of the word in the Old Testament in all of the cases of redemption, there was always a decisive and a costly intervention. In other words, somebody had to pay the price necessary to free, for example, property from mortgage, animals from slaughter, and people from slavery, and even the death penalty. But its most potent use relates to Israel's redemption and deliverance from slavery in Egypt and from their exile from Babylon. In fact, twice we see God reminding them specifically of their exodus from Egypt. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, listen to what he says. He says, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you. I will redeem you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 15, God says this to his people, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this day see, the story of redemption is the unfolding message of the Bible. In fact, to make this very clear, I want to just break some things down for you. It has long been taught that the Word of God is ultimately, or can ultimately be broken down into four major buckets, four major themes. And I'm going to put it up on the screen for you just to visualize this. Uh, Scholars and Bible teachers often tell us that the Word of God can be broken down into these four buckets, creation, fall, redemption, and then recreation or new creation. This is the the overarching narrative of scriptures. Here's where it begins, here's where it ends. Now, it's fascinating. When you think of scripture, we have 66 books of the Bible. We have 1,169 chapters in the Bible. And I just want you to think of this in terms of the, the grand story of Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. Here's how this breaks down. At the very beginning, we have two chapters devoted to creation. We have one chapter devoted to fall. We have two chapters at the end of the word of God devoted to new creation or recreation. Then catch this. We have 1,164 chapters devoted to the unfolding plan of redemption. For some of you, you need more of a visual graphic, so let me just put it like this for you. 
in this little pie chart. 99.6% of the word of God is unpacking this beautiful, grand, incredible story of redemption. 0.4%. I mean, we, we had to actually make that sliver bigger for you so you could actually see it on the screen. Is devoted to everything else. I mean, that tells us what is at the very heart of the word of God. God is committed to explaining to us his unfolding plan of redemption. And listen, from the very beginning, from Genesis 3.15 onward, when Adam and Eve have fallen into sin and God comes to deliver the curse, he begins by telling them amidst the curses, there is one that is coming who will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, listen, there is one who will come and undo all of the ravaging effects of sin upon this world. There is one who is coming to restore a right relationship with God that was infected and destroyed because of sin. And all of the scripture is beginning to unfold. Who is going to be the one? Who is going to be the redeemer? And as you track through the word of God, this is what you need to see from Genesis 3.15 onward. By the way, God begins by reminding them a sweet picture of their own redemption, of his own saving grace. He takes Adam and Eve who are, who are naked and ashamed because of their sin now. And God himself sacrifices the first animal and takes its skin and covers their shame. And from that point on, God begins to give us pictures and images and to progressively reveal for us how he is going to redeem and who exactly it is that will be the redeemer. Throughout all of the covenants of scripture, all of the Bible stories that you've been told, from the exodus to the exile, from all of the promises and the covenants to the prophecies like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, the one who will be crushed for our iniquities, every part of it is presenting the story of God's unfolding plan of redemption. But what it all leads us to is what we know and we love so deeply in this church. God's story is a grand story, but it is pointing forward and centered on his plan of redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Everything that he lays out before the cross is pointing to the cross, and everything that comes after the cross is flowing out of the cross. You see, the story of redemption, secondly, is the heart of the gospel. It is the very heart of the gospel itself. As Jesus had unpacked the scriptures, what a conversation. I would love to have been a fly on the wall in that conversation as Jesus unfolded the scriptures and marched them through all of it pointing to himself in his redeeming work. Verse 28 says that they drew near the village to which they were going and he acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. He continued to go further with them, and they, he, he opens their eyes, but we'll get there in a minute. Later on, it says that Jesus is with some of his disciples. I want you to drop down to verse 44. He's with some of his disciples, and very similarly, he has veiled himself from their eyes and he says, said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So you want to know, you maybe ask the question, what exactly was Jesus explaining to them from the Old Testament scriptures? I mean, we don't even have to guess. It's right here. He was showing us everything that pertained to his suffering, to his dying and his rising from the dead everything that makes redemption possible. It's the very same thing that the Apostle Paul had done with the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 as he was going from town to town and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. It says that Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, proclaiming to them that it was necessary for God's promised king, Jesus Christ, to suffer and to rise from the dead. Paul showed them like Jesus did, that Jesus is the culmination of God's redemptive work. That all the signs and the symbols in the Old Testament, from the sacrificial system to the, the Passover lamb, all of those promises and prophecies, they all pointed to this work of redemption. They all pointed to the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross is central in any biblically driven church of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul had said in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 2, For I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's the very heart of the message that he proclaimed everywhere he went. So why, why must we focus so much on the death of Jesus? Why must we focus so much on the horror of the cross of Jesus Christ? Because it was just that, it was horrific. Why can't we just focus on, on nice, feel-good messages so we walk out of here really pumped up about our own self-esteem? Why do we go to the heart of the gospel, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? Well, I love what... Charles Spurgeon said, he said this, to attempt to preach Christ without his cross is to betray him with a kiss. Just as Leviticus teaches that the life of the creature is in its blood, Spurgeon saw that the life of the gospel is found in the blood of Jesus. You see, without blood, it is lifeless. The cross, as Spurgeon put it, is Christ's throne of grace and the central act of redemption typified in the Old Testament by all the sacrifices of the law and all the redemptions of God's people. This is what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 7, doesn't he? This is why this is our ministry year theme for the year. In him we have redemption. And you'll notice the actual verse, Ephesians 1, 7, Paul actually elaborates what exactly that redemption is. Look at what he says here. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Every person here who stood and testified to the grace of God in their lives, I want you to see this. They all testified to the reality of the forgiveness of their sins that was only made possible by the shedding of blood through Jesus Christ. That is the testimony of every follower of Jesus Christ. Not look at me, not look how good I am, not look how adequate I am, not look how godly and holy I am, but look at what Jesus has done for me. This is the theme verse for us as a church this year, but listen, I want to encourage you, this is the, really the anchor verse for us as people of God. In him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of sins, and all of it, all of it by his grace, all of it undeserved, all of, us, all of it freely given to us. In the Old Testament, people were redeemed from a variety of terrible situations. 
They are redeemed from their debts. They are redeemed from captivity. They are redeemed from slavery and from exile. And even again, like I said, from execution. But all of those point to the most grave situation of all for all of humanity. And it is the greatest hope for us all as well. That Jesus, through the cross, ransoms. He pays the price of his own life so that he can redeem us from the bondage of sin and death. Complete forgiveness is offered. His life in our place, paying for our sins, his death for our freedom. This is the great doctrine known as substitutionary atonement. That where we deserve to pay for our sins, where we deserve to suffer the wrath of God and alienation from God's presence and his blessing forever and ever, God comes along and says, no, you don't understand, I love you so much, I'm willing to die for you. I'm willing to die to pay for the sins that keep us apart. I'm willing to bridge the gap and I've sent my son Jesus Christ to do it. For God so loves the world. Spurgeon said that could all the perfections or attributes of God's glory be laid out and unfolded before us, we would perceive that the chief splendor of his majesty lay in his infinite benevolence, that God is love. This is the prominent point of the divine character, and that loving goodness is most fully displayed in God's work of redemption, culminating in the cross. The story of redemption is the heart of the gospel. It is the message of the Bible. And listen, the story of redemption is the joy of the church. It's the joy of the church. It's, it's what we rally around. It's what unites us in such a unique and precious way. The church is not just some social club that gathers and rallies around some common uh, loves or, or, or common identity issues. We come and we rally around a person who has accomplished something on our behalf. I love what happens as Jesus had unpacked the scriptures to these two men as they walked along the road to Emmaus. Look at verse 30 with me. Jesus sits down at a table with them. This is, this is so fascinating. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. You have to, you have to see this as the idea of the Lord's table. The imagery here is unmistakable. He takes this bread, he breaks it, and he gives it to him. And at that very moment, the word of God says, and their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And then he vanished from their sight. And look at what they say. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I love that idea there. I love the emotion that's involved there. A heart that, that burns within us when we see and understand the unfolding plan of God's redeeming love towards us. When we see, listen, and this should ignite our hearts on fire every time we see who we were, how far off we were from God, what we truly deserve, and yet we see the pains that God would go to, the details that he would oversee to make sure that we could be rescued and redeemed. As you're reading through the scripture and you're seeing God's faithfulness over and over amidst his unfaithful people, as you see him liberate his people from bondage and slavery over and over and over again, as you see God faithfully love his people so sacrificially, listen, you need to see this is pointing towards the greatest act of love in the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it should ignite our hearts on fire for him. It ought to produce an overwhelming sort of joy in our hearts. And I want to quote Spurgeon again. He was so helpful to me 
he focused so much on the cross and the gospel in his own ministry. It just, it's so overwhelming to read how he articulates the gospel, brings everything back to the gospel. He says this, it is especially the love of God shown in the cross that turns and transforms the hearts of sinners. In the horrifying torture and crucifixion of Jesus, we see the highest proof of the highest love. His bleeding makes our hearts bleed. His shame makes us ashamed. In the cross, we see the divine disgust at sin that makes sin appalling to our eyes. But further, listen to this, through the cross, we see a love so vivid that it pierces our apathy and overwhelms our desire for other things. Sinners, Spurgeon said, are naturally held back from God by a lack of desire for him, but the cross will breed desire. It will breed within us holy affections. The sinner is held back by love of sin, but the cross will make him hate the sin that crucified the Savior. The cross is the quintessence of that love which makes us love. We love because he first loved us, amen? And the redeemed community, by the way, in heaven, those who have been saved but passed on from death to true life. It's amazing to think about what they're doing in heaven. They're they're right now rallying around the throne room in heaven and they're singing a new song that celebrates the worthiness of the Lamb. Look at what Revelation 5, 9 says, one that's so familiar. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain, and listen to this, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You see, when we contemplate the love of God towards us in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this should motivate us towards holiness. It should break apart our apathy. It should create and stimulate greater affections for the things of him. It should propel our worship and it should propel our faithful ministry to him in this life. You see, we're reminded as a church that once we were slaves to sin and now we are the slaves of Jesus Christ. Serving Jesus is true freedom, and in the church, it is our common salvation, it is our common redemption that produces our uncommon joy. It is a joy that the world looks at and cannot understand. It is a joy that is a fragrant aroma to so many in the world who are desperate to be reunited with their creator. Joy always flows from the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And it always flows out of our continual submission to his lordship. Listen, we say this all the time. If you choose to sin, you choose to suffer. But if you choose obedience, you're actually choosing blessing. You're choosing joy in the Lord and the sweet satisfaction of your soul that flows from obedience and submission and surrender to him. And I want you to see this as well, that redemption, though it means lots of things, the the buying back out of slavery, the liberation from exile, redemption actually paints the picture of lordship. Redemption paints the picture of authority. Here's what I mean by that. You see, it draws attention to the redeemer who actually has the owner's rights over the thing he has redeemed. Do you see that? It's, It's not just about our need for him and our dependence upon him. It actually speaks to the reality that because he bought us and purchased us at a steep price, he actually owns us. 
He is our Lord, and every area of our life belongs to him. And by the way, this is, this is not foreign from the scriptures. Paul says this in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, where he's speaking to the Ephesian elders, and he says this to them, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained or which he redeemed with his own blood. Paul says this about your life and mine in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that you are not your own but you were bought with a price. Our greatest joy as a church, as a community of faith, is in knowing, loving, and living, to G- living for Jesus together. It is in our common submission to him as our Lord. It is in our profession of faith and our declaration of allegiance to him as Lord. And I know some of you have been wondering about our logo and some of you have asked me questions and you've tried to pull some stuff out of me in advance and it wasn't gonna happen saving it for today, and I want, I want to throw the logo up there for a second. I want to explain to you why we chose it. Some of you are like, that's a little bit weird. Yes, it's abstract. It's creative, okay? Give us a little bit of creative liberty. God, God is a, a creator, right? Beauty, artistic. But I, I just want you to kind of get there. There is a deep theological significance to this logo. This logo, in, in other words, tells us a story, and we wanted it to be a, really a platform for you as our church family to be able to take and to explain the story, the story of God's redemption in your life. Obviously, the color red, that deep red, is significant because it symbolizes the cost of our redemption, the blood of Jesus Christ. And some of you haven't seen this yet, and I'm pointing this out, and the lights are going to go on. It actually makes an R. You see those triangles, how it's an R? So I'm like, oh, now you're never going to forget it. But the theological significance of this is, is really important to understand. You see that larger triangle, it reminds us of the triune God. Some of you are like, why isn't there a hole in the ark? Because we want to keep our theology tight, okay? There's no hole in the Trinity. There's not going to be a hole in that triangle, all right? <laughs> That triangle really is to be a representation of our triune God, and I want you to notice the triune God is above this lower triangle, this smaller triangle. Listen, catch this, that is made in the image of the triangle above it. And the idea is this, listen, that we as the people of God, as individuals and as a church, are underneath the lordship of our God and our Savior and our Redeemer, and we have been bought with the precious blood of Christ, listen, so that we can turn around and image the love of God and his redeeming work to the world around us. This wasn't just artistic creativity. There is theological intentionality. And I hope that the story of this logo becomes a platform for somebody who comes up to you and says, what, what, that's, that's an interesting little logo. What exactly does that mean? I hope it gives you an opportunity to stand firm upon the truth of Scripture and to explain how people were created by God and were called back into a right relationship to God that had been fractured by sin through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I hope it's a reminder for us perpetually, listen, that we do not exist for our own glory. We exist to image the glory of God to the world. That leads us into our fourth and final point for the morning. Listen, because the story of redemption is the need of the world. The story of redemption is the need of the world. It's it's actually why we as a church continue to exist, to bring glory to God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Here we see as 
the eyes of these men and of the disciples have been opened, there is a, a natural overflowing response. Their hearts burn within them. In verse 33, look at what it says. And they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Like, don't get lost in all the details. Do you see at the heart what's really happening? They cannot but help tell people what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for them. They can't hold it in. They have to let people know that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave, that Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death, that the promised Messiah has come. He is the Redeemer and he is here for the redeemed. If you leap over to verse 47, just remind you what we said, we saw earlier, and the, the repentance and forgiveness of sins, look at this, should be proclaimed in his name. Do you see this? He, he, he doesn't just redeem a people. He calls them to go out and to be a voice of redemption, to offer redemption, the forgiveness of sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. Go out and proclaim in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power on high. See, what is the church of Jesus Christ supposed to be and supposed to do? Jesus said to his followers that those who have repented of their sins and trusted in him alone are to take that message to the nations. The proclamation of Jesus Christ ought to be at the heart of the church's mission to disciple the nations. And to do this, we must know the story of redemption and we must be part of the story of redemption. We've been given a precious gift in redemption. Sins forgiven, relationship restored, a present and a future hope. How can we, let me ask you church, listen, how can we keep this message to ourselves? How can we keep the joy of our salvation to ourselves? We should not. We cannot. We must be obedient of hearts filled with love and joy to the Lord because of his grace towards us. We must go to the world and tell them what our Savior has done for us. Every one of you is given this card. It says Redemption Church, and on the back it says you're invited. And if you're here, you're certainly invited to come back. <laughs> but I want to encourage you. You all have one of these for a very specific reason. I, I, listen, our prayer this year is that God would use us in greater ways than he has in the past. We want to see more and more people come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We want to see more and more people growing in the relationship with Jesus Christ. Listen, but all discipleship begins with declaring and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Listen, you have something simple. Everybody who's saved, so often in scripture, what we see is those who are saved, listen, they cannot help. They gotta go and tell it to somebody, right? The woman at the well, Mark chapter five, come and see the one who's told me all the things about my life. Can I just encourage you as a church? Here's what I'm asking of you this year. Just think of one person, one person, okay? You don't have to go and tell your whole neighborhood. I mean, you can if you want, that would be awesome too. You don't have to stand on a street corner and preach, although that's fine too, I guess. I just want you to be thinking, listen, that the, you've been saved for, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been saved for a reason, and that is not to keep the gospel of God's gracious redemption to yourself, it's to go into all nations and declare it. Can you just be praying and thinking about one person this year? Who's your one? 
Some of you already know, already right now on the tip of your tongue, you know somebody who you believe God is calling you to share Jesus Christ with. Can I encourage you? Who is the one person this year that you are going to have courage, listen, empowered by the Spirit of God to go and invite into your life? to have gospel-centered conversations with, to invite into your home, to invite into your church, to invite into a redeeming relationship with the God who created them. Take this, pray about this, and do not hold on to this. The story of redemption is God's story. And by his grace, the story of redemption is our story if we're in Christ Jesus. God calls us as his church, as his people, to go unto all nations and tell his story. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. And as we close this morning, I just want you to notice how Luke ends his gospel. You see, his disciples are told they're going to get power from on high to fulfill the mission. That's good news, because we have that same power. But then he leads them out far into Bethany, and he lifts up his hands, and he blesses them. And while he blessed them, it says, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven This is the glorious ascension where Jesus Christ is exalted to the right hand of the Father right before their very eyes. And I want you to see here the response this evokes and how central it is to the mission of the church. It says this in verse 52, and they worshiped him. After all that they had heard about his redeeming power, after all that they had seen, they were looking at the God who loved them so much that he would come down from heaven to earth, to live a perfect life, to sacrifice his life on a cross made of wood, and to rise from the grave, only to ascend back to the right hand of the Father. They saw all this, and here's what it stimulated in their hearts and what it ought to stimulate in ours this morning. Worship. I don't know exactly what that worship looked like in the moment, but I can tell you this, with all of their hearts burning inside of them, with their voices, I'm sure, with their hands raised, I don't know, maybe on their face before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, they worshiped him with everything they had because they realized that he and he alone was worthy, amen? And it wasn't just then that they worshiped, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This is our great joy this morning, church. Listen, praise comes before proclamation. Worship comes before witnessing. So let us stand together this morning. Let's get on our feet. Let us lift our voices to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who redeemed our soul.